Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, and this is HFL number 136 with uh, Matthew Kramer. Now, Matthew Kramer is a local boy made good, I guess you could say. Um, Matthew is the current music director of the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra and the Muncie Symphony Orchestra and the Marion Philharmonic, and well, you can go to his website, of course, and see everywhere he conducts, but... Um, little bit of a hometown feature in this and some interviews coming up. Uh, when I say hometown, I mean Indianapolis or Indiana or anywhere here in the, the central Indiana region. Um, but before we get to Matthew's interview, I've got to tell you about the show sponsors. Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric and trim color, add custom engraving, and more and of course, you can find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Marine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at PicketBlackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram, and you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal, you can find out more at eastmanwins.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil uh, Never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community 
by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on with the interview. Hey there. Hey there, Larry. How are you? Great. Yourself? I'm good. Uh, has your, you've been growing your beard in. Did you have that last week? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe I didn't notice really, but you know, thinking about a mask. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's looking good. For a little while. You can get away with it, you know, now that we've got that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm in uh, winter hibernation mode now. Gotcha. Well, what is it? November is like no shave November. That's usually when we're supposed to, you know, grow a beard or a mustache or, or whatever. That's so, right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. Things are good. Yeah. I'm uh, staying busy in a different way than normal, but um, no, I've got no complaints here. I love the background, by the way. This is thank uh, you. A couple of things that you've done. And it's, it looks very, I don't know where you are. You could be in a studio, you could be in your, uh, your basement. I don't know. Hang on. Oh. <laughs> right? You can Perfect. I'm in yeah. I'm in the loft of my of my house. So, yeah, the the uh, what do they say the the beauty of uh, special effects, right? The magic of Hollywood. Magic uh, of Hollywood, yep. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm not in Hollywood. I'm in Fortville, Indiana, which is, you know, <laughs> some people might consider like the furthest thing from Hollywood, but it's oh, fine. Uh, you know, it's funny you say you're busy and you know, a lot of people would think man, you talk to somebody these days and it's like, I don't know, I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs. I don't know what to do, but everybody I talk to, they're finding a way to stay busy. It's either with, you know, being creative in a, in, in a new way for what they already do, or they're taking on a new venture, right? They're heading in a new direction. Um, and so I don't know, I might be jumping the gun. That might be, uh, you know, even something that you're doing. I, but that's why we're here is I want to find out more about you and of course uh, your relationship with uh, the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra and Marion Philharmonic and and all of that. So um, yeah, so Matt or Matthew, what do you prefer? I've been going by Matthew for about 20 years, but uh, my wife, friends still call me Matt. So just Matthew is usually my, you know, okay. default. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you know, I want to respect that. That's why I ask, right? It's like, you don't want to just assume uh, so, uh, Matthew Kramer, welcome to my podcast. I'm glad to have you here. It's a pleasure to join you, Larry. Thanks. So, uh, we've worked together a couple of times uh, in professional settings, but I, I think we actually go back, uh, both of us were students at Butler simultaneously, and I cannot for the life of me remember what year or years. Mm -hmm. do, do you recall when that was? Yeah, it would have been in the late 90s. Uh, I graduated with my undergrad in 99. Then I stuck around an extra year uh, to do some conducting studies while I kind of figured out where I was going. So, Well, that, that was it. Yeah, I came back in 2000 to finish my master's. 
So that's when we would have crossed paths. How about that? 20 years we've known each other, right? It's fascinating. And, you know, the, the, the old saying, the time does fly. But I just, you know, now that I'm back in Indianapolis and on campus, as much as campus has changed, I mean, I'm really almost walking 20 years in the past when I'm stepping around everywhere on there. So, no, it absolutely does seem like yesterday in many respects. Um, Stan Derisha was still there at that point. Were you studying conducting with him? I kind of, uh, yeah, fell into that. You know, we say it's the conducting bug, but as a violin major, uh, you know, studying excerpts and, you know, the repertoire and everything, just something that was fascinating about uh, conducting, you know, and it wasn't just the standing up there waving your hands around kind of thing. It was just, you know, not being a pianist, I was only used to one line uh, at a time. And the fact that there's this whole apparatus, this gigantic instrument, uh, you know, that which we were all a part of playing in orchestra, I just fell in love with the, the repertoire more than the concertos and the sonatas that I was practicing. So yeah, went up to him and just said, you know, I know there's no um, uh, undergraduate program in conducting, but I'm really interested in this. And uh, he had a, a few other people who were doing independent studies with them. So I had about uh, two, two and a half years of, of just, you know, private lessons. And it really just kind of like go to his office for an hour and just talk, you know, kind right. of thing and uh, right. nothing really formal, but that's how I got my foot in the door. I, I had forgotten that you were a, a violin major, or maybe I, I just thought you were, you know, conducting the whole time. Um, that, uh, you know, I appreciated, one thing I appreciated about Stan's orchestras was he never shied away from challenging repertoire. Very you know, <laughs> and, and, and he did a great job of programming, but I, he also did a great job of, of teaching us how to be professional musicians. I mean, and there's some harsh things, you know, conductors uh, sometimes say, and I've not played under you enough to know if you've got anything harsh to say. Well, hopefully I won't find out anytime soon. But, you know, I mean, it, it's, uh, and of course it's a different thing conducting a student group rather than a professional group. But uh, I always appreciated what uh, what he did for me is in, in terms of how to prepare and how to uh, comport myself in, in an orchestral setting. So, um, so, okay, you finished with uh, a degree in a uh, master's in conducting, is that right? No, actually both my degrees uh, are, in, are in violin performance. Oh. Um, so this was something I felt very strongly about. I mean, to connect the dots here after that extra year of conducting studies, I had a few options uh, that I was considering, but my number one option was Rice University uh, with Larry Ratcliffe. And I really uh, had my eyes set on that, but he only takes one student every year and I was the runner up. So that fell through and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but uh, made this great connection. Uh, Larry Shapiro, my violin teacher, uh, connected me with Philip Ruder, uh, who was the former concertmaster of Cincinnati Symphony for about 25 years. Uh, and he had relocated out to Reno, Nevada of all the places uh, to start up a master's program in orchestral career studies. So I went out there as his assistant. Um, you know, he was conducting the orchestra, but he didn't really want to do it. So he let me conduct like almost every concert, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I practiced all the excerpts getting ready for an or orchestral audition. So at that mm -hmm. time, I think my violin playing was at the best uh, that it would be, uh, including even now. Um, and I was ready to take these, these auditions. And it turns out that at the same time I was doing conducting with the Aspen, uh, got into a couple auditions. And the very first audition I had after graduating with my master's was a conducting audition and that's what I won. Uh, so I became a conductor. Well, and it's not, it doesn't always work that way, right? <laughs> I mean, <there's laughs> some, it's, it's sometimes it's a much longer path to, to that, yeah, right? And multiple true. auditions, multiple, uh, 
opportunities and, you know, where people say you've got to pay your dues. And I know I'm still paying my dues in, in a lot of respects, but um, so what was that audition that you won? Where, what was that? That was with the Akron Symphony in Akron, Ohio, um, mm -hmm. a really fine orchestra, you know, Cleveland Orchestra is just up the road. So a lot of the, the musicians are either on faculty at, uh, you know, either Oberlin or Cleveland Institute or University of Akron or their master's students, uh, artist diploma students that have stuck around in the area. So it was a really great group. Uh, and I was in charge of the Akron Youth Symphony. I was the associate conductor there uh, with the Akron Symphony. So. Uh, you know, I thought, again, to your point of, you know, paying your dues here, I thought, wow, you know, I got my first gig. This is great. You know, and now I was already, you know, arrogantly looking down the road of what was the next step, next step. And I ended up staying there five years and in numerous wow. auditions during that process. So you get up on the first leg of the ladder and it doesn't guarantee you're going to make that next step anytime soon. So it is a constant uh constant fight in our field uh, and, and all of the arts, you know, for that, uh, it, it, you know, to, to move up the career ladder, the food chain necessarily. Um, but it was, it was a good first gig because it was a very fine, remains a very fine orchestra. And uh, a lot of great things happened for me in Akron. I met my wife, future wife uh, in Akron. And, you know, I still go back there uh, because family and everything. So mm -hmm. that was the first gig and, and I was green as could be. And I got a lot of lumps uh, in the process. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is your wife a violinist or a trumpet player by any chance? She's a veteran, veterinary technician, and now she's working at my son's school district as a teaching assistant. So she has no connection to music, uh, which is perfect for me. And uh, she's also, you know, I, uh, since I, I know very little about animals and, and education, she's been uh, very, uh, very wonderful for me uh, in that regard, too. So, yeah, no, well, no I, connection I, professionally. Yeah, I, I bring that up because, you know, uh, I'm a trumpet player married to a violinist, uh, Dan Gosling, trumpet player married to a violinist. And, you know, it seems to be kind of a pattern. I don't know if, if our mentalities, uh, you know, <laughs> our, our Myers-Briggs uh, personality traits uh, line up, or maybe they're just total opposites. But um, so but Akron... Like, almost ahead. every orchestra that I've been to is that, you know, about uh, anywhere between a quarter to a third of the orchestra is married to each other. Uh, the Virginia <laughs> Symphony, uh, where I went to next after that, you know, was, uh, I would say, easily one third of the orchestra. And I think, you know, a part of this too, yes, personalities, uh, but also when you win a position in an orchestra, you're moving, you know, most likely to an area where you don't have any familiarity with anybody. And the people that you end up spending the most time with are your colleagues. So it makes sense to me that, you know, as a violinist, you're looking across the section in the cello section at the new cellist that just arrived or vice versa. And, you know, many relationships start that way. Well, and that's exactly what happened. You know, trumpet players have a few more rests than violin players. So, you know, I'm sitting there scoping out and seeing who's sitting up there in the in that violin section. I'm like to my second trumpet player. I'm like, hey, Sean, what's her name? He's like, I don't know. And, you know, so you know, it took me a while to figure out uh, who she was, but 20, 24 years we've been together now, or married, married 24 years. That's marvelous. Congratulations. You know, thank you. Thank you. Um, so Virginia, where, uh, where in Virginia was that symphony or is it located? Uh, Virginia Symphony, Norfolk, Virginia Beach. Uh, Joanne mm -hmm. Folletta had been there as music director for, you know, almost 30 years. She's just recently mm -hmm. stepped down. Um, and so uh, that was that was two seasons uh, there with the Virginia Symphony. And that was my then, you know, really uh, going from the shallow end of a, a regional orchestra that you know only had a certain number of weeks a year to a full time orchestra with a 40 week season. Um, the workload, you know, quadrupled, you know, or sixfold even 
Uh, the amount of work that I was responsible for, I conducted all the pops concerts, all the education concerts, which were extensive. We got two subscription concerts a year on top of it. So, you know, here I thought, well, five years in the business, I think I know what I'm doing now. I, again, I mean, it just it opened up a whole new layer of green that I was exposing to everybody. Um, so that, you know, was really uh, where I really kind of felt like I was uh, at a professional pace, just, you know, working harder, studying harder, responsible for more programs. Uh, and that was then, you know, after two years, right at the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, and so everybody was reeling, you know, with uh, trying to rein in costs and try to take a better you know, uh, picture or take a better look at what the, the scope of things were going to be going forward. Uh, and just at that time, then uh, the Buffalo Philharmonic position came open where Joanne is also music director. So that was the segue up to Buffalo after that. So as an associate conductor or assistant conductor, whatever the, the title is, uh, do you actually get to, you said you were responsible for programs, but does that also mean programming? Are you able to, to actually choose the repertoire for those? Yes, uh, you know, excellent question because it all depends on where it is. Uh, you know, the assistant conductor, associate conductor, resident conductor, and they're all just titles. But, you know, for really large orchestras, you know, friends of mine that, you know, worked for uh, Cleveland Orchestra or New York Philharmonic as assistant conductors, they're really just cover conductors. They're sitting in the hall with the music director or with uh, the guest conductors and they're, you know, they've studied the score, they're out there listening for balance and they're the backup just in case something does happen. Uh, and occasionally it does happen. I had to step in for, for Joanne Folletta in Virginia for a program, you know, really a few hours uh, before the concert. So it does happen occasionally, but you're really just there, you know, as a safety net and for the ears uh, in the hall, but for both the, the Virginia Symphony and Buffalo Philharmonic, I was very much on the on the podium at least 40 to 45 percent of the time. Uh, more concerts a year than Joanne. If you take a look at all of the education concerts, all of the family uh, pops, you know, my own subscription concerts, the run out concerts, the sold services, all the different things that, you know, uh, an orchestra with that size budget up to 10 million dollars. Uh, they do. It's not just sitting in your hall and playing uh, four repeats of the same program. And that's your weekly schedule. Uh, so in my, my capacity, both in Virginia and in the, the five years I spent in Buffalo, uh, I very much programmed all of the education family uh, and my own classical concerts. There was some input there, obviously, on who the soloist would be. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to do Rite of Spring or Girl Leader or massive <laughs> thing. So I, I obviously had to fill in a lot of holes in, in the programming. But I did very much program all of the concerts that I, that I was responsible for there. You know, I think about uh, backup quarterback, right? You're there, like you say, you're sitting in the in the hall, studying the score, following through rehearsals and everything, just in case, right? Just in case, and you said that happened. But, you know, it's, you may not know. It's like, well, this happened so uh, infrequently. But then, you know, it, was there any kind of adrenaline or, or, well, not panic. I think you're way too composed to be <laughs> to panic, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, what's that feeling like when you're like, okay, Matthew, you're on. It's kind of like panic, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're talking 10 years ago too, you know, or in my, yeah. actually close to 14 years ago. Um, and so, you know, in that particular case, uh, it was a flight delay. Uh, and the first half of the program was something like Copeland um, uh, music for movies. Uh, and then this, this world premiere of an English horn concerto um, by Kenneth Fuchs. And so, you know, I was there for the week and I knew, and the second half was Beethoven five, which even 14 years ago, I could do cold. 
and and so you know, I, I, the, there's a flight delay from New York down to Norfolk, and so you're going to have to go on, bring your tux, and you know, just going through my head, you know, do do I know this? I never had a rehearsal with the the guest soloists, even though I was there in the hall. Do I know all of the? You know, you think you just very. Uh, mathematically at this point, like where mm -hmm. are the places that I need to really worry myself the tempo changes and you know, dramatic uh, 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 places that we really need a lot of focus. Uh, so, you know, deep breaths, uh, some kind of Zen meditation backstage, everybody telling me I was going to be fine. And, you know, I did it. The first half went off great. I was actually looking forward to the second half. And then Joanne comes in through the stage door. She, her flight had arrived. So she goes out and does Beethoven five, which, you know, was at that point, it was, you know, fine, you fine, I'll, I'll go to the, the restaurant and have a martini and, and you need dinner at that point, so. <laughs> uh, you know, it, well, it's easy, I think, easier to get up and do that when you've got a really fine band in front of you, right? I mean, it's not like you're having to get up and they can't play by themselves, you know, I mean, yeah. in many respects, uh, you know, I think that's it, one of the, the videos that comes to mind, and I know Bernstein and Vienna had a really special relationship, but there's that video of him the, one of the Mozart symphonies, I think, where he's just got his hands in his pockets and, mm -hmm. you know, and the group's just playing and he's just kind of giving, you know, these facial, uh, these, these looks, you know, these little uh, winks and, and such to the group. I mean, he didn't need to be there. Yeah. You know, Maybe I mean, not, not to conduct, but, you know, of course, I, mean, I know another big thing that you guys is you unify, that's kind of your job is to, to unify the idea, the style. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're not you're not just a metronome. <laughs> well, exactly. I know in some cases you might you might think uh, you, you need to take that role. But, yeah, I mean, mostly it's it's that unification of style and the idea of how to approach the piece. Right. I would agree with that that completely. And I still believe fervently in that, that if you don't come at it from the music perspective, you'll never be a successful conductor or, you know, or a musician or any, you know, just in general. That's that's what we have to, to, to keep our eyesight on. And I say that as a conductor, because, I mean, frankly, there are many people that I've known and uh, that are in that are in the field for all the wrong reasons. And, you know, it's it, because you're up there on the podium, you get the bow, your face is on the, 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 the season brochure, but it's about the music. And, you know, what I find so fascinating for our patrons that come to the open rehearsals is they get to see the rehearsal process, which is critical, as we all know, like that's where that that's where you put it together because any fine band can sit down and play through a Mozart symphony. They'll play through it again. And the mistakes will be, you know, 50%, if not more of them will be corrected automatically by themselves. Musicians know exactly what they did wrong and don't need to be told unless there's an errant node in the part or something. Uh, but it's, it's the unifying of, of the vision because, you know, I played in, in conductorless ensembles and it's fun. It's invigorating. But, you know, you're talking about 75, whatever the piece is, uh, extremely talented and very well-educated musicians with strong opinions about how this music should <laughs> be played. And when you get into a situation, you know, you, you've played in, in chamber ensembles your whole life, you know, as a string quartet player was my background, you know, they can be contentious at times where you're arguing about tempi or phrasing or, you know, who's flat and who's, you know, it gets it's it's when you're on when you're responsible for that singular vision, then you get a lot of the the flack, you know, pushed back. But at least you know there's one perspective there, and if it doesn't you know work out, you don't get invited back as a guest conductor or whatever. But that's that's the number one responsibility is to have a vision for what it is that you're playing. And I'm talking not just about classical works, you know, even in pops, yeah, that you know you get the drum kit in and the band can play just fine, but a conductor can really mess things up 
really mess things up if they bring the the you know the the group back in too early when there's a band out in back of you. Uh, you you know you you set you 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 start the wrong tempo. There's a lot of things that a conductor can mess up, even when it seems like it's not possible to mess up something. I mean, a lot of responsibility in that regard. You know, I, I feel kind of the same way uh, sitting in in uh, the hot seat. You know, the principal trumpet, uh, because I can I can make or break, you know, a phrase or a piece. Um, but I love that pressure. I mean, I really there's something about it that uh, you know I, I think a lot of people would just freak out. And and I'll admit that, like you admitted, you panic. I, I've panicked a few times. But less and less, you know, as I get older, because I'm realizing, you know what, I, I don't have to strive for perfection. I just have to sound, I just have to sound good. I have to play, you know, and just worry about, worry, worry about making music. And it's become so much easier to play when I take that focus, you know, yeah, you know because mistakes cool. happen. Absolutely. And I agree with that sentiment completely. You know, the sports analogies with, you know, musicians are, are kind of tiresome, but you know, there's, there's something that I, I've always appreciated the fact that we don't hit our peak, you know, at 25, or, you know, our knees go out and so what we can keep playing, we can keep conducting. I mean, there's something to be said about, you know, there actually is a lot to be said about experience uh, and, and wisdom that comes with age and having done, you know, a piece several times. And, you know, going back and for me, I go back into my old scores and I see how I used to mark things and, you know, the, the ones that had the highlighters and I'm, you know, from my early days are long gone. Those are in the trash can 10 years ago. Uh, but you come back to things and you have more insight because you've lived with them longer. And, you know, to that point about pressure and, and uh, nerves. And I mean, that's what I also thrive on. I mean, if somebody asked me if I get nervous, I mean, it's a different kind of nervous, you know, if you've mm -hmm. done your work, you've practiced or you've studied and you know what, you know, you feel comfortable, you know, comfortable with where you are. It's a different kind of nerves. You don't lackadaisically walk out on stage and all right, let's do this and, you know, get, get it over with. But, you know, that's, that's the thrill of what, you know, live performance really is. I think for us as musicians is to be there in that moment when the sound is created, you know, and then just taking chances, uh, you know, yeah. in, in that moment. You know, Doc Severinsen, I remember him saying he still gets nerves when he walks on stage. And he said, of course, this was many years ago. He said, you know, I realized, and he looked over like he was looking at his nerves and thought, it's, it's a friend. I'm just going to welcome him onto stage with me, you know? And I think, man, I wish I could be that, <laughs> you know, that uh, nonchalant about it and just say, okay, they're there. Let's go. Let's just, that they're going to be there. But um yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to edit that part out because I don't want want people to know I'm nervous about stuff. <laughs> uh, so let's jump to uh, an opening comes for uh, for music director for the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. Mm -hmm. How did you find out about that? And then what was the process for application, audition, and that sort of thing? Yeah, the uh, music director, and even for associate conductor, but particularly music director, the the whole procedure uh, is very elaborate and very long. I think it would surprise a lot of people. Um, you know, of course, we knew this orchestra, uh, you know, back in our college days. And, and uh, you know, I think five, I count at one point, five of my teachers played in the orchestra at one mm -hmm. time, and uh, mm -hmm. three of them still do uh, at this moment. Um, so, you know, we, we get our, our notifications. Uh, an orchestra can post League of American Orchestras, for example, and there are a couple other uh, professional sites. Um, 
so it's pretty apparent when jobs come open. I mean, there you get 500 people apply for a job. I've loved chamber orchestra repertoire for for 20 years, uh, and even though I was working with and continue to work with large orchestras, I'm music director of you know two symphonic groups in addition to the chamber orchestra. Um, I've loved this repertoire, you know, because it's the the orchestra of Mozart and Haydn. You know, we start, we could really, you know, Bach. I love Bach. I love the Baroque era, but we can look at the. The, the, the modern orchestra is coming from uh, Haydn and Mozart, obviously, and then Beethoven, certainly. Uh, so that's that's the, the heart of our repertoire in many respects, even though large groups do it, you can do it very, very well. Um, you know, that's the, the Viennese classics are the com uh, composers that continue to resonate with me as a violinist uh, and as, as a conductor. But, you know, even though in the 19th century, the orchestra was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, there's some great repertoire in the 19th century, but the 20th century, is a treasure trove of incredible works for small orchestra. And I'm just convinced that composers came back to chamber orchestra because of the transparency, the intimacy, um, you know, the, the, the concept of chamber music is evident in, in chamber orchestras where really the musicians are listening to each other and, you know, times where I just really feel like, you know, they've got this, they don't need me to do, you know, it's, they're, it, it's, it's, it's just amazing to see the communication, which is, you know, oftentimes impossible in Mahler, you know, to, to, to trust your ears in the back of the orchestra that you're even in the right place with the violins up in front of you because of the distance. Um, you know, that, I find this, this repertoire uh, to be uh, so full of treasures that people have just not programmed enough or have not been heard enough uh, and that composers continually uh, and, and contemporary composers come back to uh, with this instrumentation. Um, so I find no shortage of repertoire to program every year. I'm, I'm sitting on a, at least a dozen programs that I've been pushing off year after year after year, trying to get into the mix. Uh, and, you know, not just classical works, you know, since I've been with the Chamber Orchestra, we've done Kiss Me Kate in concert, great Cole Porter classic. You know, we programmed uh, for, for Bernstein, Trouble in Tahiti. Um, you know, we've got a number of commissions that we've worked. Uh, every year has at least two commissions or at least two premieres of some kind or another. And in addition to the Contemporary Music Festival, we perform, you know, I, I tabulated somewhere about 12 uh, works by living composers we do every year, and we only have seven subscription concerts. So I, I find the, the wealth of, of repertoire to be stimulating, and uh, I'm constantly coming across pieces that I was unfamiliar with. There's just a lot of music out there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I find it interesting thinking uh, back to the very first orchestra concert I played at Butler. We did Beethoven one on the first half, Mahler one on the second half. Now, all these years later, I look at that and I think, why was there full orchestra out there for Beethoven? Yeah. Right. And I wonder, you know, if Haydn or Mozart or Beethoven were to come back, well, Beethoven might appreciate the large orchestra. He could probably hear it <laughs> right, or feel it. <laughs> but, you know, for them to come back and think this too much, this is just too much, you know, uh, 12 stands of first violins is, is too much. How about, you know, two stands of, of everybody? Um, so it'd be interesting to, to even see if uh, a large symphonic orchestra take that kind of approach. And I, and I have seen, I remember when Gonzago was, uh, was with uh, the ISO, I remember him scaling some of those things down uh, and rightly so. You know. um, the, uh, you mentioned uh, living composers and I don't know if Ligeti is uh, still living, but he's he's a new composer, new to me at least. But you know, some fantastic writing, and really imaginative. Uh, imaginative. Have you performed uh, any of his works? My first season, we did the Concerto Romanesque uh, here of his, and um, you know that's more of the Bartokian 
uh, look at Ian. It's it's great, you know, but it's a great, uh, it's a really an orchestral showpiece and very accessible from the audience. But I like his music a lot, and I've been trying to figure out ways to get it into the repertoire here. I just have to ease into it because it is extremely difficult to put together. Melodian is a piece that I have uh, kind of scheduled here at some point to get in. And that's, you know, you look at the score and the bars are kind of spilling over in places, trying to get all the notes in. Uh, and it's difficult to rehearse. Um, it, it takes a lot of time, in other words. Uh, so I still have on my list, uh, you know, uh, that for the chamber orchestra. The violin concerto is terrific uh, and extremely difficult. You got to find a violinist that can really play the heck out of it. And there are several who have mastered it. And I mean, they're, they're, their fee is exorbitant, let's put it that way. And most of them are based in Europe. Um, and, um, you know, there are, let's see, a couple other pieces of his, the, uh, is it the, the, his opera, the piece that uh, Mysteries of the Macabre or something to that regard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, pretty wild. And there's a great uh, kind of a viral uh, uh, Simon Rattle performance of it um, with uh, Harrigan uh, comes out and does it in, in, in crazy clothing and everything. And it's just really, really wild. Yeah. But we've done uh, Barrio uh, with the Chamber Orchestra. We did, uh, and he's another you know, Italian modernist, you know, contemporary of Ligeti. Um, we did his renderings, which is the the uh, you know the Schubert 10th Symphony, which was unfinished, and uh, he filled in the blanks with his own music. So you get that kind of sound world. You know, people who don't know these composers just think of uh, Stanley Kubrick and you know the music of The Shining. His uh, Barrio and Ligeti was used as well. So that's very. Mm -hmm you know, eerie modernist music. And, and I like that stuff and I, I would perform, perform more of it. But, you know, as a music director, you kind of have to temper, you know, how much new music you're doing and where you slip those pieces in, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that we're not San Francisco, we're not New York City. Uh, and I just have to say that, you know, my audience, I don't feel like our audiences, you know, uh, would reject that. It's just, there's a lot of new music we're talking about uh, mm -hmm. and you want to kind of insert it into the season, uh, you know, judiciously. So that's actually where I was headed next regarding the community. Uh, how do you see the ICO's role in the Indianapolis or Indiana, uh, the greater Indiana community? Well, the Chamber Orchestra remains uh, one, of the, um, the, one of the most collaborative organizations in central Indiana. We collaborate with you know, just about every arts organization you can imagine. And you know, symphonic choir to the violin competition, the American Pianist Association. Recent years, we've collaborated with uh, the city of Indianapolis and the Sister Cities program, the Idle Jord. You know, the list really goes on and on. And, uh, you know, we were hired by these organizations or we hire, uh, you know, other soloists or choruses from other organizations. So, you know, there's a good chance, uh, no matter what service, uh, you know, you're talking about performances in, in, a, in an ensemble that you have musicians uh, from the chamber orchestra in those ensembles, in the recording studios. Um, our musicians are really involved in, in teaching uh, at local universities and private lessons. Uh, so that's kind of where I start with this. That's been longstanding for the chamber orchestra is that we are a col a collaborators uh, and, and we continue to do that. Uh, we're, we're also the only professional chamber orchestra in the state and you know we've had engagements uh, outside of central Indiana, performing, you know, in the recent years over in Richmond and over in Terre Haute, where we are every year, uh, to the south and to the north as well. Uh, but our home base here, it, it remains Indianapolis. You know, one thing that we continue to work very hard at the Chamber Orchestra is getting our brand uh, out there. Mm -hmm. And we continue to work to do a better job uh, to build our audience, which is a struggle for any orchestra. But, you know, since we're uh, one of two professional orchestras in the city, and the other one has a very, very large budget, 
uh, it's always a struggle to to um, you know again to get our brand out there and to make people aware that we're, we're we've been here for 35 plus years and that we're playing great music uh, that a lot of the other orchestras don't play. Uh, frankly, anywhere uh, you can hear music that's either commissioned by us or that just isn't in the repertoire. Um, so that's where I think we have a special niche that we continue to fill. Well, and you're doing something that the ISO is not doing right now, and that's maintaining a presence uh, with with uh, either virtual. Um, well, I guess they're all virtual performances at this point, but at least you're doing that. So kudos to you and the ICO for for doing that. Thank you. Um, thinking about repertoire. Um, that you've programmed and, and that is coming up, um, f pieces that really resonate with you, are there, and you can't wait for the audience to hear them or, you know, that is, that's already come and gone that, are there anything, is there anything that stands out? Yeah, several, um, you know, it was the big, it, it still is the big Beethoven year. You know, I remember back in, in, uh, in 2019 where everybody was seemingly, everybody was complaining, oh great, more Beethoven, you know, here, you know, it's not every year that somebody, you know, the most, probably the most impactful composer in history, certainly if not the most popular, among the most popular, celebrates his 250th birthday. And then what happens? Pandemic and now nobody's playing his music right. publicly. So we did get his eighth symphony in and I, I adore the eighth symphony. I, I always can't, I can't figure out if it's the seventh or the eighth that I enjoy performing more. Um, but we had Fidelio planned, you know, and I really mm -hmm. had my eyes set on that, a, a, you know, really a wonderful team. Of soloists chorus put together that was going to be our season finale last may and you know and in the early days of you know, covid we were thinking all right well we'll just postpone it a month we'll do it in june you know or mm -hmm. can we do it in july you know and how you know none of us knew that this was going to stretch on as long as it has so i do regret that you know and we're, we're gonna we're gonna have that again um at some point in future season we'll be able to get, get back to that project a uh, number of commissions that I'm, I'm particularly thrilled with michael torkey's violin concerto we were part of mm -hmm. a consortium uh to uh, to commission Michael to write that for Tessa Lark, uh, who's an Indianapolis favorite, you know, silver medal of the violin competition uh, several years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a bluegrass concerto with some Celtic influence, <laughs> and it's a terrific piece. I mean, standing ovation afterwards, and Tessa's, you know, just the right soloist for that piece. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thrilled that the chamber orchestra's got his name attached to it, along with eight other orchestras. I'm doing the piece again. Um, it would have been this September, but I'm doing it in, with Arkansas Symphony. 2022. So this is a piece that I think is going to stay in the repertoire. Uh, and so I'm thrilled we were a part of it. James Aitman's Peacemakers, which I referenced earlier, you know, that was already in the mix before I came on board, but that's a, what he calls a filmic oratorio, you know, dedicated multiple movements to great peacemakers, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Gandhi, you know, the list goes on nine movements with film uh, to it, with two choruses, sitar player, mezzo-soprano, Piano solo, saxophone solo. I mean, it was just a huge, biggest piece that the Chamber Orchestra ever did. And it won us a, a regional Emmy for the, the uh, documentary broadcast that we put together with WFYI for that. So that was another one. Well, congratulations. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. That's fantastic. Oh, thank you. That's, you know, to my point that I continue to say that the Chamber Orchestra needs to do a better job of telling the stories because we're, we're, we're getting a lot of accolades here. In fact, I mean, I, I, we, we're in the, the newest edition of Symphony Magazine, which is the uh, the quarterly uh, magazine, the League of American Orchestras. We've been in there, you know, several times in the last five years. And this one is about the Virginia Toolman commissions, which we were awarded uh, for uh, emerging female, comp uh, emerging women composers. We mm -hmm. uh, had a premiere of Chinwi Jen's work, which was written for us. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, national recognition for what we're doing here. Uh, and, you know, the, the repertoire, you know, that's, 
there are pieces that you know don't seem like you know oh well, why would that piece be i mean it's so traditional like beethoven 8 like i just mentioned but you know those pieces are also very special to me so it's not always the big pieces or the new pieces you know there's there's a lot in all that we do that i can think back fondly and say that was a great concert i'm proud of it and i agree you know years ago i would have said oh Mahler's my favorite composer just give me any symphony and now i'm like you know i really enjoy playing beethoven and i've had students ask me why? It's just playing the same thing over and over. And I said, first of all, there's a challenge there in being really consistent with articulation and shaping, you know, those notes to match the timpani or, you know, convincing the timpani player to match you <laughs> on yeah. something. Um, but the, I also find so much joy in Beethoven. And so I'm, I've become really drawn to him. And, and speaking of Beethoven, you know, I always found it funny that he's considered one of the finest opera composers and all he wrote was Fidelio. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's how genius it was, right? And it was so good. Yeah. Um, he he so, wrote the same opera three times, you know, the three different yeah, versions right. of Fidelio are like so dirty. He said it would be, have been easier to write an entirely new opera than to go back and revise Fidelio <laughs> the times that he did it. They're dramatically, I mean, one is dramatically different in conception. Very true. Um, well, and of course, uh, you know, the trumpet players, we get uh, two of our most famous audition calls from, uh, from those pieces, so, uh, from those overtures. Um, so, you know, coming up, uh, does it look like there's going to be a 21-22 season, do you think? In, Definitely. In we feel very optimistic about that. In fact, our plan is in January uh, to return to clues with a hybrid model for our audiences. So we've already proven that we can we can get the orchestra together safely. Uh, we had our Beethoven fourth a concert last month. We've uh, prepared now our all Baroque uh, instrumental uh, Christmas program, which is airing on December 19th. So on the 20th of uh, January, our plan is, I just said the 20th, later in January, our plan is to mm -hmm. come back uh, with a socially distanced uh, audience and also the virtual streaming model for those who aren't ready to come. Now this will all depend of course on where we are sure. in the county. Um, but, you know, Clues used to be the home for the Chamber Orchestra many years ago, and we all know how enormous that hall is. You know, we're confident that we can get 200 people in the, safely in pods uh, all around uh, space with no intermission in the program. So you come in, sit down, you know, live music. And, and we're hearing from so many people that they're ready for that, that they're just yeah. hungry for the, the communal yeah. experience of hearing live music. And, you know, you can, get, you can get the best recording equipment, but if people are listening to your, 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 your broadcast from their phone, it's gonna sound dreadful anyways. And who's got you know, multi-thousand dollar stereo equipment where they can really listen? And even then it doesn't replace the live experience. So our hope is to come back uh, for the second two thirds of our concert season. Uh, and a lot of it's been changed to reduce the orchestra so that we can continue to safely space them out. But we're, our 21-22 season is already planned and, and ready to go. And a lot of it are just the rescheduled dates. You know, we had two commissions in particular that kept getting pushed back. So everything has just gotten moved into 21-22. And, and even if you know, we have to socially distance uh, the orchestra and the audience, we can do that because, you know, our core is 35 musicians. You know, you, I don't think you're going to be hearing Mahler or Shostakovich in the 21-22 season. I hope the vaccine does what it's uh, it's supposed to do and people, uh, life can get back to normal, but we're prepared to, to, to continue with what we're doing now, even in the next season. I, I'm really glad to hear that. And I think a lot of people will be very glad to hear that uh, too. So yeah, you know, uh, getting the brand out there, uh, I mean, unless you just market yourself like crazy, 
uh, you know, and spend all kinds of money. But I, I find it, well, a little bit sad that, you know, that the ICO has struggled with, with that. Uh, you know, of course, I'm aware of it. And I know all the musicians are aware of the ICO. But, uh, and, and you've got a good uh, core patronage, I would imagine. Very much. Um, yeah, and I, I know you guys do the educational programming. Uh, so there's not, there's no reason you shouldn't be uh, better, better well-known. But, um, well, that's a, maybe a conversation for a, a different time. And I, I'm thinking I may just edit that last little bit out of there. But, um, like. yeah, so... Um, well, this, this has been great. You know, I, I, I've subbed in the ICO and I can't remember uh, who was conducting. It wasn't the previous conductor, although I have played under his baton. He was a guest conductor in Muncie. Oh, wait a minute. He used to conduct Muncie uh, Symphony as well. Kirk Trevor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. So he was, okay. he was up there as well. Um, but, uh, well, I forget where I was headed with it. Oh, Marion Philharmonic. Right now, you've got uh, you mentioned a couple of other uh, groups. Is Arkansas one of those that you mentioned? No, just a guest conductor there. Uh, I've been music director of the Butler County Symphony in Pennsylvania uh, for nine years now, and that's just outside mm -hmm. of Pittsburgh. Uh, regional orchestra, about the same budget size as as Muncie, um, and a great group. And I and, and you know I've been so happy there because um, I really felt like uh, you know I came in at just the right time to to help that organization get to where it needed to be, and it's you know, celebrated the 75th anniversary a few years ago. Um, and that is a real music loving community with a lot of history there. Uh, and so I've, I've appreciated that, you know, it takes about seven weeks out of my calendar. Uh, and then Mary and I joined about um, the two, this is my third season there, although nothing started, you know, the right way, obviously the first season was reduced uh, anyways in size and then COVID hits after the first, uh, the second concert of the second yeah. season. So that it's it's really taken a while to get roots planted in uh, in, in Marion effectively, but we are returning to concerts in the spring uh, as the plan. We have right. an obstacle with just venues there and not being able to get into venues, uh, but we're optimistic that we'll be able to move the majority of our season and just compress it into the spring months. Good, you know, I'm always amazed. Uh, well, and so many of the musicians travel from one regional group to another. You know, and, and in fact, I'm thinking I don't know why we don't just take charter buses charter buses from one weekend to the next, right? And so much of the musicians, uh, so many of the musicians are the same. Um, but Marion, you know, I've been part of some spectacular performances up there and the audience is so appreciative. And I'm thinking uh, uh, the previous music director, Alex used to say, used to refer to it as the gem of, oh, what county is it? Uh, gem okay. of, yeah. Uh, and I think it is. You know, it's it's something very special in that community, and I really hope that that orchestra can can grow. Um, I think you've got Fort Wayne so close, but you know, if you've got somebody in Marion, you know, the opportunity to hear great music in Marion, uh, how much better is that? So that's right. And to your um, point, you know, a lot of the musicians you know are, are are shared among so many of these orchestras, including Fort Wayne. If it's an off mm -hmm. week in their calendar, they're down right. playing as well. And I think that this is, you know, to the point that there's something, you, I, and I knew this being, coming from Richmond, Indiana, and I was principal second, you know, with my hometown orchestra for two seasons uh, while I was a Butler student, uh, the source of civic pride of having the city's name attached to your orchestra and here, this small little Midwestern town has an orchestra that plays six concerts, you know, I think that that's something, you know, that really seriously should be taken 
into consideration here, you know, with, with uh, leaders in the community when they're deciding how much funding goes where. You know, with my orchestra in Butler, for example, it's a very small town, uh, but it was much, much larger at another time. Uh, they were written up in Smith, Smithsonian as one of the, you know, the, the small towns uh, out, out uh, west, you know, in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, but one of the things that they listed is that they had a professional orchestra. So there is something, you know, that I think people look at and say, hey, you know, we might be a small town, but look at the things that we have to offer here that we don't have to drive to Indianapolis or Dayton, Ohio or Fort Wayne to hear. And I think that that's a lot of smart people in these smart in these small towns have kept these orchestras going uh, for that reason, for the cultural enhancement, the, the quality of life that we, we impart, you know, with our presence there. Well, I'm hoping that uh, regardless of the size of group and, and the town, I'm hoping we can all rebound from, from what's happened uh, here. So, um, Matthew, thanks uh, for the time on this and, and for sharing everything. You know, like I tell everybody I interview, you know, I knew very little about you. <laughs> and now I know a lot about you, uh, which is great. That's kind of the, the whole point of this. And, um, you know, I look forward to, uh, to hearing your, your groups play and, and hopefully being part of some of those performances. But um, so we'll, we'll end it there. Thank you, Larry. It was great connecting with you. It has been great working with you here. And I just hope that we get back to some kind of steady, uh, you know, structure right. in our concert schedules here. So, right, right. So, well, thank you. Stay healthy, please. You do the same and all the best to your family. We'll talk to you Thanks soon. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for joining me today for my interview. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, you can visit patreon.com slash studio HFL. By becoming a supporter, you can have access to content that is exclusively available to my Patreon patrons, which would include excerpts from interviews. I'd also like to remind you to visit Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review, and don't forget to follow me on social media. Thanks again for being here and listening, and I hope you come back for another interview next time around.